You are listening to I Survived the Wild Outdoors podcast, where real outdoors men and women share their heroic tales of survival. I'm your host, Brad Mathewson, and this is their story. Welcome to an exciting two-part podcast episode. In part one, I take you back in time when I was an adventurous teen who thought it would be fun to do an overnight ice fishing trip. Many unforeseen challenges arise due to my lack of experience and camping knowledge that could have cost me and my partner our lives. Only the stunning northern lights can keep us from calling the trip a total failure. Then, in part two, listen as four hunting buddies chase moose in the last frontier known as Alaska. Unfortunately, a near-death encounter and a ride on a moose few rodeo cowboys would dare line up for ends their expedition. Hello, Brad Matthewson here. I thought I'd kind of mix it up today and share one of my own personal stories. This goes back to the early 90s when I was in high school, and I was just a young teenager, still wet behind the ears when it came to being a real outdoorsman and, you know, maybe ladies' man. I was really lucky that my parents put me on the right path as a young age. I was allowed to go out um, unsupervised out into the wilderness and on the water with my friends and kind of make my own mistakes. And uh, this is kind of one of those stories. I think with all the things going on today with, with kids, they're too busy playing video games or in the house watching YouTube. And they're not, I'm not saying that uh, parents should let their kids just run wild outside, but it's nice to get them, let them get out, you know, go catch some frogs and go down to the local pond and, and, and do some fishing. But So today I thought I kind of want to share this story. So I wrote basically a short story on this many years ago, and I wanted to share it. So here we go. My best friend in those days was a kid named Jason. He was a stubborn kid, didn't really take any crap from anybody. He was always a welcome sight anytime trouble arose around the, <laughs> on the playground or at school or after school. He was like a brother to me. And... One day, I was standing next to my locker when Jason approached me. He had this plan for our next big adventure. The plan was for his mother to drop us off just outside London, Wisconsin, where I'm from. It was the middle of winter, and we were going to do some ice fishing out of a portable ice shack, his dad's. thing was, we were going to try to do it overnight. We wanted to do an overnight camping thing, which we had never done before. So we had fished down here plenty of times. We knew what, what was there for fish, but... We wanted to get there kind of early afternoon, fish for northerns, and then as evening would go on. What it was is basically uh, kind of an oxbow or eddy off of the, the Wolf River in New London. And we were going to hike in and fish for northerns along the edges. And then as evening, we're going to get out more to the river channel where it came out into a sandbar, and we're going to fish walleyes. So we got out there, and... It was early afternoon, like on a Friday, I think it was after school. And the temperatures probably, you know, mid-30s at the time. Bluebird sky is really nice. But all that would drastically change. So by about 6 o'clock, everybody else was off the ice, and we stayed out there. Now, we're probably, you know, six miles out of town, let's say. We're 15 at the time, so we don't have our license. His mother, like I said, dropped dropped us off. Our supplies for the night were... uh, Mountain Dew, I think a couple bags of Fritos and uh, maybe a Doritos or something to that that was going to get us through the evening for nourishment, I guess. 
So by about seven o'clock, it's starting to get darker, and we thought, well, let's go bore some tip-ups along that uh, along that sandbar. And we had little lights on our tip-ups so we could watch them. And uh, we went off to the side and gathered up some wood for a fire, anticipating that's going to get cold. By the time it was about seven o'clock at night, it was starting to get dark. We thought we better get the lantern going. Now neither one of us had ever lit a lantern at the time we'd always watched our dads do it so this was kind of all new to us so i remember pumping up this lantern it was a white gas and you pump 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 and then kind of turn the knob and then they had these little white mantles on either side so you turn on the, the gas of course now i know how to do this now but so you turn on the gas and you light your match and you stick it up in the hole and the white mantle will catch fire and then you give it a little more gas and eventually it'll go from a flame to a a glowing light so i go to do that and flames are shooting out the top because i got the thing cranked wide open and we we didn't know what was happening so we we took off running into the woods thinking this thing's gonna explode we're sitting here waiting and finally it goes out so get back try it again and lo and behold as i look inside my matchbox there's no more matches so we start wrestling around in the bottom of our tool or tackle box and i find one single match now we have to ponder do we try to light up our firewood and try to get a fire going to stay warm? Or do we try to light this lantern so we got light and some possible heat? So being kids not very bright, we should have went for the should have went for the fire right away, but we didn't. So I try to stretch the lantern again. As I strike the match, <laughs> the wind kicks up and just poof matches out and then there we sit so we started digging through all our stuff to try to find another match and luckily we find one more match after we thought that was it we found one last match said the lord's prayer (laughs) try to light it again and sure enough the wind kicks up poof it's out and now we're done. Now we have no light. We have no heat. And the temperature is plummeting. So that night it got down in the single digits. And we're going to... We're too far out of town to hike it back. I suppose we could have. We're only probably six miles. We could have probably made it out. So we continue to fish. We end up catching, I think, one walleye. But it was too small. We ended up putting it back. And then it got about 10 o'clock at night. And we thought, well, might as well climb in our shack. Climb in our shack with the rest of our clothes that we had on. Now, we are, of course, we aren't prepared for this at all. We have sorrel boots. We're wearing, we don't have wool socks or anything. We have two pairs of cotton socks that we put on. You thought we would have been smart enough to bring snow pants, but we didn't. We had our jeans and long underwear on. Not a very good winter jackets, hats, and some gloves. So we crawl into this shack 
And we kind of talking, what are we going to do? And we thought, well, we just kind of huddled together like two lonely prison inmates <laughs> miles away from our snug, toasty beds. And we talked about all the great times and adventures we had together, thinking that <laughs> this might be the last one. Starting to get a little sleepy, and just about the time I think we're going to enter the gates of heaven, a lone coyote howls out. It just sends tingles up our spines. You know, we're 15. We've never really experienced being out overnight, kind of in the wilderness, I guess, so to speak. And now we're we're shaking uncontrollably. The cold is just soul piercing it's just oh i remember just my feet tingling my hands tingling and you know we should have there's different warming drills you could do we should have got out of our shack and you know we could have ran sprints and jumping jacks and all that but we didn't we end up uh laying in the bottom of our shacks kind of huddling together back to back and uh just thinking you know everything i read about how you know stages of hypothermia how get the shakes and then you get tired and pretty soon you fall asleep and you just don't wake up so we're trying to keep each other awake and eventually jason drifts off to dreamland and i myself am getting pretty sleepy and eventually i fall asleep and for some reason mother nature called for me to take a leak i checked my watch it was two in the morning of course, you got to understand, this is back in the, probably around 1994, 95. There was no, we didn't have cell phones back then. A few people might have had bag phones, you know, if your parents had some money. But we didn't even have flip phones back there. So, in fact, in our vehicles, when we turned 16, we actually had CBs, if that tells you anything. But no phones. So, I checked my watch, and it was 2 in the morning. Got up crawled out of our little plastic ice shack and uh, went outside to relieve myself and I looked up and there in the Arctic bitter cold was this beautiful beautiful light show the sky was full of two beautiful blonde gypsies playfully dancing colors of green it was amazing it looked like just something out of Hollywood. I've never seen the Northern Lights before. I know in Wisconsin we don't get them very often. And uh, being in northeastern Wisconsin, definitely don't get them very often. But uh, it was amazing. So I walked back in the shack. It was freezing. I went to cuddle back up with Jason and <laughs> look over, and he's snoozing away, so I knew he was still alive. He had big, too long snot icicles hanging from his nose. Yeah, drifted off to sleep, woke up. We slept, actually slept in, woke up, and it was probably, oh, gosh, maybe about 8 o'clock in the morning. And uh, we could hear hungry ice augers chewing up the lake or the the, the ice bias and uh, check our watches and like, well, let's pick up our crap. We're still alive. We'd eaten all our snacks up that night and our chips and our whatever Mountain Dew we had left us frozen solid so that wasn't going to give us any nourishment that morning so we didn't have too far of a walk maybe three quarters of a mile walk out to back out to the main highway luckily his mom had showed up early that day and 
as we neared the highway there we saw jason's mom waiting for us i thought to myself thank god she's (laughs) she's early and not late so we get in the vehicle and his mom asks us so you know how was your how was your night and i we looked at each other i didn't want to get in trouble because we were unprepared and like oh yeah it was good good and she's like oh i was so worried about you guys all night but now I'm not, I don't have to worry since you guys, you know, made it out here and you guys are safe. And uh, so now, now you guys can, I trust you to go on, you know, more overnights like this. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, I don't, <laughs> I do not want to ever do this again. So then Jason pipes up and he says, oh, I got a great adventure for the next weekend. And uh, I just shook my head. So. That was my story of uh, barely making it out alive on the frozen ice of the mighty Wolf River in New London, Wisconsin. So we're lucky. We're lucky we didn't get any hypothermia. I mean, my fingers were still tingly. I remember going home, telling my parents what had happened. And uh, my mom ended up making me get in a warm tub of water. My toes are red, a little white. I had no frostbite. I don't know how. Uh, I remember just my feet hurt bad, just the pain. And uh, it was probably early stages of frostbite, you know, your fingers and your hands. I didn't, I didn't receive any nerve damage or long, anything long-term. But, uh, yeah, we're very lucky. It's something just innocent. So you go out and just ice fishing, you're just kids. And, and uh, yeah, it's important to um, to dress warm and dress in layers and have multiple ways to start fires and have cell phones and all these important things when you go out there but yeah being a kid we we survived and uh we had a great time and and uh had a lot of fun so to close up make sure if you're going to do all that stay safe be prepared a moose attack sometimes the hunter becomes the hunted and those giant horns you seek come after you in the fall of 1987 alaska gave a one mark hugan a ride of his life. Three hunting buddies from Illinois and one from South Dakota were in Alaska on a once-in-a-lifetime bow hunting trip for moose and caribou. The group of four were very accomplished big game hunters and all extremely proficient archers. Their names were Mark, Mike, John, and Jamie. They had planned on a drop hunt rather than a float trip because of the amount of hunting pressure along the local rivers. Plus, with the aid of an airplane, they could put many more air miles between them and the crowded river and have a better experience in the backcountry. From a base camp, they could hike out in a large circle and return to a temporary home each night. Little did they know they'd be hiking 15 to 20 miles a day. The hunting party was to fly out from a flight service located on the Kiyunai Peninsula, which is 50 air miles south of Anchorage, with bows and arrows packed and a 12-gauge and a rifle packed for bear insurance. The crew set out from the airstrip early on August 28th and were set to return September 18th. The first camp they flew to was on the west side of Lake Clark. The landing went well and they set up camp. On day two, Mike stalked a bedded bull caribou and harvested him. The next morning, Mark bedded three bull caribou, snuck within 25 yards and made a great shot and the bull quickly piled up. After taking care of Mark's bull, They went to retrieve Mike's bull from the day before, only to discover a bear had found it first. 
and consumed much of the meat. They did, however, manage to salvage some meat. The area that they had chosen to hunt was saturated with bears, and it was bound to happen. On September 2nd, they flew out of Caribou Camp after not seeing any more animals. It was time to get to Moose Camp. A few days in the new area proved to be worth the move, as Mike's two well-placed arrows had put down a nice trophy 56-inch bull moose. The day of the agreed-upon time to be picked up at the airplane, it was very windy, and the lake they had landed on had four-foot waves. The next day was more of the same, but late in the afternoon, they saw their airplane fly over, but he couldn't land because the weather was so bad. So, Mark did what any other hunter would do, given more hunting time. He decided to go hunting. Not long into the hunt, he spotted two bull moose and a cow, and quickly eased in their direction. Mark spotted one of the bulls and the alders and tried to get the bull to turn by breaking branches and imitating another bull. Then, as he had eased in at 25 yards, he realized he made a mistake. He had stalked the smaller bull. After realizing this mistake, he looked around and spotted the bigger bull not 40 yards away and another thick patch of alders. So he began the same calling technique of breaking branches and rubbing his bow on a tree and mouth grunting to a new avail. He then had tried a different sound he had heard Mike's bull make and the bull beelining toward him at five yards. Mike was scared and froze and he couldn't draw his bow. As the bull turned and began to move away, he launched an arrow that hit behind the back of the ribs and buried halfway in. Mark gave the bull a half an hour to expire, then bowed his tracks, which were easy to follow through the alders, but he couldn't find any blood. Then he spotted him 40 yards away standing and slowly moving his head from side to side. He decided the best course of action was to put another arrow into the bull. The arrow flew straight and hit its intended spot and passed completely through. As the moose ran to some spruce trees and vanished, Mark decided to give the moose a few more minutes. He retrieved his arrow and it confirmed it was a solid shot. Mark continued tracking the bull when he blew up from the alders not 15 yards in front of him. As the moose ran by, Mark let another arrow fly and it struck the moose once again. At this point, Mark decided enough was enough and he decided to head back to moose camp and let the big bull expire. When he reached the top of a hill he was ascending, he was surprised to see his trophy bull was down. So as he walked over to check him out, during his approach, he noticed the bull's leg start to twitch and move. Suddenly the bull started to get to his feet. Mark took off running and tripped over his own feet and fell into the ground. As he was rising to try to get back up, the full weight of the bull crashed into Mark's backside. The bull's horn pierced high into Mark's left butt cheek and pushed him forward and flung him up into the air and onto the moose's head. Now as he was astride the moose's horns, holding on for dear life, he took his legs and wrapped them around like a spider around the moose's nose. He thought for sure he was going to die, so he hung on with every fiber of his being. The now agitated bull started ramming his head into the ground, trying to gore Mark and smash him to bits. Finally, Mark was completely exhausted, and so was the bull. As the bull lunged forward, Mark's foot slipped and came unglued, and the moose stepped on the foot immediately, and Mark tried to roll off to get out of the way. Instead of rolling away, he ended up rolling back into the moose's intended path 
and he was trampled over his whole body, causing excruciating pain. Though badly hurt, Mark got up quickly and ran away. When he looked back, he had seen the moose fall once more and figured the moose had finally expired. Now, more important things, he needed to get back to camp. He was in bad shape. Blood was running down his leg from his hole in his butt cheek, but he was also very concerned. They had encountered many grizzlies on the trip, and he was very fearful he would run into one on the way back to camp. As he was covered in blood and smelled like a moose, as Mark neared camp, he saw Mike and Jamie. They helped him into camp and immediately broke open the first aid kit. They cleaned him up the best they could and stuffed gauze into the two holes in order to stop the bleeding. That day, the pilot who was supposed to pick them up flew to the original camp they had moved from and flew over the lake, and the pilot had decided it was too windy to land. So the next day, several more planes flew over in the morning, and Mark's buddies frantically tried to flag them down, but to no avail. Luckily, later in the afternoon, a man named Larry, an officer for the National Park Service, seen the crew waving as he flew over and landed to see what was going on. Larry and his passenger loaded Mark up and flew him to Port Ellsworth on Lake Clark. Larry's wife fed Mark some dinner and flew to Sildotna, where he was driven to the local hospital. Once there, they cleaned and dressed his two puncture wounds on his buttocks, which were two inches deep. After they had finished, they gave him a complete checkover and sent him on his way. The next day, the original pilot named Greg found the note that they had left at their first camp, stating that they had moved. So he flew back and found them at their new camp, loaded everyone up, and flew them to Sildatna to be reunited with Mark. Mark was stated as saying, this is one hunting trip I'll never forget. Who would have thought a hunter would be attacked by his intended prey and live to tell about it? I hope you enjoyed this two-part series. As always, stay safe and enjoy all that Mother Nature has to offer. If you like what you heard today, click the subscribe button to hear more upcoming stories. If you or someone you know have a survival story you'd like to share, contact me at isurvivethewildoutdoors at gmail.com.